Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Wednesday, July 29th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. This is very exciting. Jarvis Cocker is on the show today. Jarvis Cocker um, is a icon in some ways. I mean, he was the lead singer of the band Pulp, who were one of the biggest Britpop bands of the 90s. You know, there was sort of Blur, and then there was Oasis. And then when you were wearing tweed and smoking a pipe, there was Pulp. And Jarvis Cocker is an incredibly uh, thoughtful man around music. So we talk about a bunch of things that have sort of... I love when an interview sort of stays with me for a couple of days afterwards, and this is one of them. One of the things I thought about was... Is a song a song if nobody hears it? I guess that goes for any kind of art that you make. If you don't show it to people, does it really exist? Not to say that it doesn't, but does it? It's it's an interesting conversation. What happens when you have a childhood dream and then you reach it? You know, we often talk about when you, you know, you dreamt of being a fireman and you didn't become a fireman, how that impacts your life. What happens if you do become a fireman? What do you do after that? And what do you do if it doesn't live up to the to the promise? And we talk a little bit about gravelly voiced era Leonard Cohen. Anyway, just love talking to Jarvis Cocker. And if you're a creative person at all, no matter what sort of creativity you're doing, I think you're going to get something out of that conversation. After that, J.L. Richardson and Whitney French talk um, about the systemic racism found in the Canadian publishing industry. We've had conversations about the museum industry. We've had conversations about um, the the book industry um, and, and many others. But the one around the publishing industry is so fascinating. And I'm, I'm grateful to JL and Whitney uh, for, for giving us their time on that. And I heartily recommend you listen to that. And then finally, Anthony Porofsky from Queer Eye, who I don't think people know is Canadian, is on the show to talk about, yes, his upbringing in Canada. All right. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, so let's take a listen to this. Alright, that's a song called Am I Missing Something, a song off the new album by the band Jarv Is. Okay, so Jarv Is is a play on words of the front person of the band, Jarvis Cocker. Jarvis Cocker, you might have heard of him. He was part of the Britpop explosion of the late 90s in his band Pulp. Um, You know, back those innocent 90s days of Blur and Oasis. The only mask you had to worry about wearing was a Sporty Spice mask on Halloween. Either way, Pulp and Jarvis Cocker helped define the sound of that era thanks to anthems like this. Still, still hits pretty good. That's Common People from Pulp from 1995. It feels like it could have been recorded like last week, you know? 
Here's the thing you need to know about Jarvis Cocker's voice, is he's used it in all kinds of ways other than music. He had a hosting gig on BBC Radio 6, a show called Jarvis Cocker's Sunday Service, which is great. He's been part of these TV specials, part of movies. He's also been writing a book. He'll make you feel kind of lazy, to be honest. So I got to speak with this 90s Brit pop icon, Jarvis Cocker, about his new album and the return to his first love. I started by getting him to tell me how this new musical project came to be in the first place. Yeah, well, the way it kind of came across was that um, I had some songs that were in various stages of completion because uh, it's a long time. The last record that I did was a, a record called Further Complications, which was back, I think, 2009. And then, uh, you know, various things happened. We did a pulp reunion for a while I was as you mentioned in your intro I was doing radio stuff I kept getting ideas for songs and I did work on them but I didn't have a band and and they were never really getting finished and then the the catalyst that made this happen was I accepted an invitation from the group Sigur Ross were doing a, a festival in their hometown of Reykjavik and they asked if I would come and play at it and I just thought, oh, that would be a nice way to spend Christmas. <laughs> so, but I, you know, the, the other side of it was I had to get a band together. And then I kind of kicked myself because as soon as I got a band together, the songs started to, you know, they started to come alive. And I just thought it was a bit like going back to the very, very early days of the group. When you first start a band, that's what you do. You write some songs, you play them to each other, and then you think, ooh, could we play a concert? Could we get away with playing mm. a concert? And mm. then you think, okay. And and really that's when I think the real process of songwriting starts because a song isn't really a song until you play it to another person. Because for me, the whole thing about songs is that there's some form of social interaction. Oh, isn't that... In, I mean, I could talk to you about that forever, but we were just talking about that, what, like five, five minutes ago about the idea of whether... A song is a song on its own, or whether an audience, whether an audience's reaction to it, is what completes a song. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a tiny bit surprised to hear you say that it's um, the performance of it and the audience reception of it is part of the song itself. Totally, I think so because I think, well, obviously I wasn't around at the dawn of time, but I think that must be why songs were invented. I mean, I remember I'm going to do a name drop now, but I remember talking to David Attenborough. Hmm. Uh, because when I was doing the radio show, sometimes I would get guests in. And he was a guest. He was like top of my wish list when I started the show. And I finally got to speak to him after about four years or so. And one question that I was asking him about was, you know, the origins of music. And uh, as far as I could make out from what he was saying, he, he thinks it's a good case to say that music predates language. And if that's the case, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Because probably we were communicated in some kind of way through music before we formalized it into language. And I think that must explain a lot of why we react to music in the very strong emotional way that we do, because it's kind of bypassing the language center and going straight into your emotional center, I think. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Jarvis Cocker. Take a listen to this track off his new record, Beyond the Pale. Most of all, must I change? Yes, 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 yes. Must I develop? Yes, 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 yes. Can I stay the same? No, 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 no. Must I grow up? Yes, 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 yes. 
Must I grow? Yes, 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 yes. Must I join in? Yes, 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 yes. And do as I'm told? Yes, 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 yes. Must I mature? Yes, 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 yes. How come you're so sure? Yes, yes. Must I evolve? Yes, yes. Must I end? That is a taste of Must I Evolve from Jarv Is, dot, 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 the new project from the musician Jarvis Cocker. And I'm interested in something you said about this record and that there's moments here of you grappling with what it's like to be a musician entering middle age. And I'm thinking about that song, Must I Evolve. And you talk, at one point, I I saw you talk about how being a pop star was your childhood goal and is a bit of a childhood goal. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you settle into still making music after you've grown up and after you've realize that dream yourself yeah I, I mean i certainly grew up in a time where to be a pop star was just one of those things like if you asked a kid of seven years old what do you want to be when you grow up they'd say like a fireman or a spaceman or a pop star it was um pop music was something that was a, a real popular um, pastime in, in the UK, people would follow the charts. There was this program called Top of the Pops mm-hmm. where they would do the chart rundown. It was on on TV on Thursday every night and everybody would watch it and get excited about whether the record that they liked went up the chart or did it go down the chart. And, you know, I, I, there still are charts now, but I don't think they occupy that central uh, position in popular culture that they used to. So... That was what was around. So I just picked that job as a kid would pick it. You know, just it was just a fantasy. But the weird thing was, I don't know, the idea just stuck with me. And through many weird circumstances and coincidences, I ended up doing that as a job. But then that's really strange to, as an adult, be doing the job that you thought up as a kid because at the time you thought it up, it's kind of... It's just a fantasy. It's like it's like saying I would like to ride a dinosaur. You know, a kid. Every kid would say that, but you're not going to grow up and ride a dinosaur. So, I ended up doing this kind of childhood fantasy job, which I think you know, I had a bit of trouble kind of figuring it all out in my mind when it first happened. Uh, the thing that saved me, and the thing that the reason why I'm still making music now, I guess, is that. Um, I realized that music for me was something, it, it gave me a way of kind of making sense of my life. I, it, I don't keep a diary or anything like that. The, the only kind of record I've got of how I've thought in the past or things that happened to me in the past is songs that I've written. So how are you, how are you dealing with the fact that, um, well, you're not, you're not a young, I'm trying to be polite here, you're not a young man playing this music anymore. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm hearing on this record. Yeah, but I think, you know, the, the artists that I admire, I mean, we lost three very major artists in the last few years or so. One from Canada, Leonard Cohen, um, Scott Walker, who I became reasonably close to, mm-hmm. and uh, David Bowie. All three of those artists were working, you know, right into the last days of their life. And so I think that shows you that that um, creativity is something that's really central to, to being human. You know, they thought it was important enough. They were getting enough from that 
to keep doing it at times when it it would have been easier, I guess, just to lie in bed and take it easy and try and slide out of this existence as 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 in in as stress free a way as possible. But but I guess you you have to you have to isolate then creativity from ambition then you know in order to do that. I guess so. Well, I don't know. You have to isolate it, but um, I I just think it, it's. You can, and I've, again, I say that I've rediscovered that in some ways over the course of the lockdown. And, I've, and from talking to friends as well, a lot of friends, I've talked to them about how music has assumed um, a, a more kind of central uh, position for them again during lockdown. A lot of friends said uh, this experience has reminded them of when they used to kind of go to their bedroom when they were 15 and listen to an album and really get into it. And, and this album would seem to be telling them something about the life that was to come when they could escape from the domestic situation, you know, living at home with the parents. And music's always been able to do that. It, it, when you get lost in a piece of music, your surroundings and all the concerns of the world melt mm -hmm. away mm -hmm. and you're in this kind of magical domain. And that's something beyond ambition or wealth or anything. It's like nothing can touch you when you get to that place. And that's why I was excited. You know, that's what made me want to be able to write songs, to be able to access that place myself, as well as by listening to other people's records as well. I just, I just, I could not love that anymore. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Leonard Cohen, given that this is a Canadian show. Take a listen to this, please. Take your foot off the gas. Because it's all downhill from here You are a manifestation of the universe Your form is unimportant But please come over here <laughs> This is Q, I'm Tom Power And that is a song called Save the Whale From the band Jarv Is uh, That is Jarvis Cocker, who you might know as the former frontman for the band Pulp. I'm speaking with Jarvis Cocker right now. So again, I want to point out this is a Canadian show. Uh, this is a Canadian audience. It's hard not to hear Leonard Cohen there. Well, you're not the first person to point that out. And, um, you know, Leonard Cohen has been a kind of creative touchstone for me all the way through my career. I mean, most people don't know the very, very early Pulp stuff, and I don't blame them. But the very first album that I released, which was back in 1983, and it's, a, it's an album called Pulp It. And um, it's really, it's just a mini album. It's only got seven tracks on it, but it, it really is an attempt to recreate the sound of the very first Leonard Cohen album, the songs of Leonard Cohen. And that's really because after I'd left school, I was hanging around with some other musicians in Sheffield and, and one guy just played me a Leonard Cohen record and, and it kind of blew me away because I'd been brought up on pop music, as we discussed earlier, and the lyrics in pop music, generally speaking, are pretty throwaway and they're just there to fill in a bit of space. Uh, and to hear somebody use language in, in, in music in such a... Um, a different way, in a way that really said something. Uh, instantly, I, I made a, a big connection with that. And, and so, yes, that was right at the beginning of my career with this, you know, the song that you just played. Um, we, I, I don't know why I took that plunge and, and tried to sing in that Cohen register. You know, it's like 
it's like a it's like dive into the bottom of the ocean you know you've got to be careful you could get the bends if you go that deep down but um I think something that had to do with it was that was the last song to be completed for the record. And it's the only one that we hadn't worked out in the method I told you before, where we were playing them in front of an audience. So we'd recorded the music. I'd written some work. Well, I, I was, I was supposed to write the words and we were, the, the deadline was looming and I'd been to see, there was a, I don't know if you saw it, a documentary film about Leonard Cohen called Leonard and Marianne. Uh, made by Nick Broomfield came out last year and I'd been to see that documentary and then uh, when I got home that night I started writing the words to the song and maybe because those two things happened on the same day when I got in front of the microphone to first try and sing these words that I'd written the voice suddenly went wrong <laughs> and uh, and that's how it came out it's 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 lovely to hear because it's it's funny because you, you mentioned that the earlier songs of Leonard Cohen, which, which which is a record where he sang in sort of a I would say a pretty normal register in influenced you in your early days, and now now we're talking about this stage of your career. It's interesting that you're influenced by influenced by uh, that that era Leonard Cohen, that synthy growly later era Leonard Cohen as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough again. Through doing the radio show that I did in the UK, I, I got to meet Leonard Cohen through that. I, I presented a playback of the album of his um, old ideas. And um, so I got to talk to him and I asked him about, you know, how low can the voice go? Will it ever stop? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he, well, because he said he'd stop smoking and he thought his voice would probably then start to go high, but it, it, he'd always assumed it was because he was a smoker that his voice kept getting lower and lower, but apparently he stopped smoking and it had no effects at all. So it, it, uh, it kept going lower. I want to go back to um, what we were, maybe close off this way by going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of, of ambition and the idea of celebrity and also the idea of creativity and songwriting. And, you know, you've experienced, and it goes without saying, you've experienced the many types of highs and celebrity that musicians often chase. You know, for better or for worse, but they often chase that sort of gigantic success. You know, the stories about you being chased down the street and, 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 and really being an icon to a lot of different people. And you've been quite open about how unsatisfying those things can be once you actually get them. So I'm wondering at this stage in your career, what is it that you're chasing? What, what, what feeling is it that you're looking for? Or, or, or yeah, what, what is it that you're after, you think? Well, I think it's what we touched on a bit earlier. It's... It's that I, in a way, it's something like um, I feel compelled to do it. I, I don't know if that sounds a bit dramatic, but the thing was, uh, as I say, it's a long time since I last did a kind of uh, a solo record about 11 years ago. Um, I was doing other things. I've been very lucky to be involved in other things, film and radio and stuff like that. But the bottom line is that my default position is music that's really the way that I see the world even down to s silly things like so if I'm running for a bus then I will be singing like I'm gonna run to you I'm gonna run to you you know I'm gonna be singing Brian Adams <laughs> as I'm running to the bus I was in a grocer's the other day and there were these oranges on the shelf and it said easy peelers and so suddenly I just started singing I get that peaceful, easy peeling. And <laughs> you come around, you know, the Eagles song. So every moment, I, 
an event in my life will be marked by a song. And so similarly, I kept having ideas for songs. And if, if your brain is still generating these ideas, it would be kind of crazy to, to, to avoid them. So as I say, I think, I think it's something fundamental to me. It's something that I kind of have to do, whether I like it or not. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks, Tom. And um, likewise. Take your foot off the gas Because it's all downhill from here You are a manifestation of the universe Your form is unimportant But please come over here That is Leonard, I mean, Jarvis Cocker with the song Save the Whale, a song admittedly very influenced by the great Leonard Cohen. Just before that, you heard my conversation with Jarvis Cocker, an artist, a musician, and a radio host, also the front man of the group Jarv Is. Their new album is called Beyond the Pale, and it's out now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. There's a lot to catch you up on this morning. See how much we can get in here. The Emmy nominations are out. These are the biggest television awards in North America. Some of the shows that receive the most nominations are The Watchmen, which is this comic book adaptation that explores real-world racism in a superhero world, the comedy series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and the crime drama Ozarks. Another highlight, and maybe I'm just speaking as a proud CBCer, but all four leads of the Canadian comedy series Shit's Creek received nominations. And if you go over to the CBC Arts page, you'll see a great breakdown of the unprecedented LGBTQ and black representation in this year's roster. Just go to cbc.ca slash arts. The awards will be handed out on September 20th in a virtual presentation. So I guess if you've ever dreamt about going to the Emmys, now you can. Okay, see if this voice is familiar to you. One day... Princess Cordelia arrived at the most beautiful kingdom in the world. She knew not a soul and was worried no one would like her. That is Anne of Green Gables in the now-canceled TV series, and with an E. Since the cancellation, there's been a worldwide fan movement in response. I mean, just check my Twitter mentions where if I tweet something like, oh, I like ice cream, people will write back, yeah, you know who liked ice cream? And surely, save Anne with an E. Now more than one million people have signed a petition to get the show uncancelled. Hitting one million signatures makes this a record breaker for the website change.org. It's the largest petition to ask Netflix to renew a show, but no sign yet of a renewal for Anne with an E. And finally, a story from the Canada Council of the Arts. Jesse Wente, a longtime cultural commentator and arts activist, will take over as the Canada Council's chairperson. He's an advocate for Indigenous representation in the Canadian arts landscape, as well as a writer and a broadcaster. If you've lived in the Toronto area, you might know him as a columnist on the local CBC Morning Show, where he talked about the arts and other things for over two decades. The Canada Council for the Arts is responsible for distributing millions of federal dollars to the arts and artists every year. Jesse Wente takes over as chairperson for a five-year term. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. 
Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with From Something Else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. So take a close look at your bookshelf. I just knocked over my hand sanitizer. Take a close look at your bookshelf, the names on the spines of your books. How many of those authors are Canadian? Okay, so now count up the authors who are Canadian and also not white. If your counting is slowing down or if it never even started, you've got a reminder right in your own home of how far Canadian publishing still has to go. Just over two months ago, police in Minneapolis killed George Floyd and the world erupted in protest. And people are criticizing pretty much every industry for the systemic racism that lives within it. There's a ton of scrutiny right now on Canadian publishing uh, who for not doing enough to promote and champion writers who are black, indigenous and people of color. But this latest push is really nothing new for my next two guests. They've been working to foster the work of black and other underrepresented writers in Canada. J.L. Richardson is an author and our Q Books columnist. She is the founder and artistic director of the Festival of Literary Diversity. Good morning, JL. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm not too bad. And I'm happy to say Whitney French is joining us for the first time, an author and educator and co-founder of the new queer feminist press, Hush Harbor. Hi, Whitney. Good morning. Good morning. So you've both been calling out the lack of diversity in Canadian publishing for a long time. So JL, let's start with you. Does this moment that we're in right now feel any different to you? Um, you know, I mean, yes, in some ways, but also no. I think for me, I've been doing this work for five, six years in particular, very targeted, very focused. And so a lot of the things that publishers are making statements about now, we've been pushing for four years and uh, nothing's been done. So for me, some of it feels a lot like posturing. It's sort of like, yeah, this is what we're supposed to do because people are watching and looking at us. But what's interesting for me is on top of that, there are still publishers who even in this moment aren't doing anything. And I'll give you an example. You know, there's a publisher who has black authors. And during this time, it has never been easier to sell black books. I mean, that's one thing that's definitely different. People are looking for black titles, black stories. And so, you know, uh, one of the challenges in publishing, it's always been like, well, how do we sell these? What do we do with them? And now you have this opportunity and there was a publisher who was not promoting their black authors, was not talking about them on social media or providing easy links to their work. And so for me, that's a kind of example of just uh, putting your authors at a disadvantage, not taking advantage of the opportunity to really increase the profile of these stories that were important when they came out and are still important now. Whitney, how about you? Does this moment feel any different to you? Um, I would say, like, I'm also thinking about, like, time in, like, a nonlinear sense. So I also just want to, like, take a step back and think that this moment right now, uh, the idea that it's easier to sell Black books, 
Um, I push on that a little bit more because I think right now the Black books that are easier to sell are ones that explain racism to non-Black people, (laughs) right? Um, So I do think that this moment is unique in particular, but I'm also really interested to see the range and the diversity within Blackness and within Black books selling as well. So, Winnie, I want to talk a bit about the, about the press you co-founded in just a bit. But first, you used to work as an acquisitions editor at a major Canadian publisher, which is someone looking for the next great book. What are the, some of the systemic barriers that Black and other uh, authors of color are up against? Um, I think when we're thinking about systemic and particularly want to name anti-Black racism in an industry like uh, publishing, uh, there are so many things that are happening. So to kind of go back to the idea of being an acquisitions editor, and like you said, it's kind of, I see it as like a book hunter. Mm-hmm. One of the barriers that I recognize was this idea of, um, you know, a, a white person or a white um putting a a white person putting a stamp on a black book and then suddenly it becomes valuable. Suddenly it's just uh, seen as the new in thing. And as an acquisitions editor, we like me personally as a black woman as well, I specifically wanted to find new black work. There's such a plethora of talent that's happening in this country. And so when we're talking about systemic racism, we're not just talking about one or two people selecting uh, black titles. We're talking about, will these black authors have access to black editors? Will these authors have black uh, access to black marketers and publicists and also have access to people who are culturally sensitive to their stories and not try to pigeonhole them into a trend that just doesn't suit them and their story? Yeah. And Winnie, you've said, you've talked about that. I mean, you've self-published your writing, and you said you weren't taken seriously in the industry until you edited a 2019 anthology called Black Black Writers Matter, published by University of Regina Press, right? Yeah, and I guess when I say that, I giggle a little bit about being taken seriously, because when I stepped into publishing to begin with, it wasn't as though people are like, oh, Whitney French equals Black writer equals you're not acceptable here. I don't want to make those like simplistic gestures. Mm -hmm. But I stepped into the space recognizing that there weren't a lot of folks like myself, and also just not a lot of folks like myself who were writing um, at multiple intersections of Blackness. And I think that's really important as well, because there is a legacy of black publishing here in Canada if we go all the way back to the 1800s with Mary and uh, Henry Bibb and then keep moving forward to like Canada this and now and etc etc there is a history and a legacy here but I guess what I was speaking to with that in particular is like how blackness can be commodified for a non-black audience and I just wasn't interested in that and so that's why I did self-publishing for quite some time. I want to get a better lay of the land here. JL, you know, through your work with the Festival of Literary Diversity, you surveyed a number of major Canadian publishers. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, we go around each year and for the for the festival we hear pitches. So, uh publishers will tell us the kind of books that are coming out that fit what we're looking for. And uh, we're looking for a wide range of stories. We're looking for a wide range of of representation, but also, for example, in the Black community, we're looking for more than just uh, historical fiction or trauma Mm -hmm. tales. You know, we're looking Mm -hmm. for romance, we're looking for crime, we're looking for mystery. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is, and and, uh, Whitney uh, mentioned this before, a very limited, very um, select form of Black stories that are making it through the industry. And it's almost it's it's almost worse in children's publishing. I'm seeing 
um, because in addition to being limited, there's just none in some categories. You know, we've been uh, for years uh, talking about children's lit, and it, I have seen in our pitches we have never been pitched a black picture book author until we called it out on social media and asked for examples. What? Um, and so there's these sort of narrow places where there's just a, a, a lack of representation. What's what's the larger impact on that? on children when we talk about the lack of diversity in Canadian picture books for children jail? Yeah, I'm aware of time. So there's a lot to unpack in that question. But we have these issues that are happening systemically in the school system. We know um, that black boys in particular, but black students in general are being mistreated. We know that reading and, and success rates are lower. And it doesn't all come back to like picture books. But there is um, a message that's sort of sent when you're not seen in picture books, when you're not a part of those kinds of stories. I think every kid needs to see themselves in books and see mm-hmm. others. Yeah. And black kids are only seeing others. And what's what's happening now, too, that's a real problem for me on an economic level. You know, I just got an email recently where they were po- uh, promoting the, the fall books for the season. And there's a black picture book, a, a girl, a black girl on the cover of a picture book. And I'm like, this is great. Except the author and the illustrator were white men. And so you have this sort of like uh, surface level diversity work that's happening, the sort of like, let's make it seem like things are okay. But like Whitney was saying, behind the surface, systemically and economically, black writers are being disadvantaged, ignored, overlooked, excluded, et cetera. Whitney, I, I can hear you mm-hmm-ing. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I get your thoughts on this as well? Oh my goodness. So two big things that uh, JL already pointed out was this idea of like the pitch. And so I attended the Fold Festival about five years ago. And I love this idea of like this pitch contest. I love this idea of like granting access for unsolicited writer. So I'm thinking about this irregardless uh, or respective of race. Uh, A lot of black writers don't necessarily have access to creative writing programs. They don't necessarily have access to um, literary mentorship. And so this idea of being unsolicited, which means um, you don't have an agent, (laughs) It's uh, you are kind of left at this idea of like people are not going to read my work and then now put on top of that being a black writer, put on top of that whatever intersections that black person um, kind of is in the crosshairs of it just creates a huge amount of barriers. And then another thing is the surface level. It's so, so true. Like representation. Yes. It is important. However, it is one step towards actual Black liberation. So I am actually not that interested in representation. I am interested in systemic change. I'm interested in Black liberation. And that begins with the way that we see ourselves and the way that we tell our stories and how we own our own stories. If you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q on CBC. We're talking about the lack of diversity in Canada's publishing industry. We're talking about anti-Black racism in Canada's publishing industry. And we're talking about what that means for the books that end up on your bookshelves. So Whitney, that, that brings me to what I wanted to talk to you about in terms of your own work here. You're the co-founder of a new press called Hush Harbor. It was just launched. It's billed as a Black queer feminist press. I know this may be a big, big question for the radio in the morning, but what is your vision for Hush Harbor? Definitely. So Hush Harper, I am the co-founder as well as shout outs to my other co-founder, Alana Johnson. So we're dedicated to imagining black feminism within the tradition of Octavia E. Butler, who is the godmother of Afrofuturism. So we recognize within the press that there are so many systemic oppressive barriers against us, but we are still resisting because of that, right? So for Hush Harbor, our vision is actually to create more Hush Harbors. It's not just to be the only black queer feminist press in this country. 
country. We actually want to create a starburst, a constellation. We want to show a blueprint. We want to show modeling. And it's it would go like a remiss without mentioning the legacy again of um, trailblazing presses like Sister Vision Press um, that started out in the 80s and uh, was defunct, uh, defunct, excuse me, in 2001. And so again, for me, uh, especially as a young publisher, um, I want to always remind people that there's this real cultural amnesia, especially about Blackness and Black history and Black creative work in this country. And so there has been a legacy of publishing. And I think right now is a key moment for us to pay attention to that and to invest in Black futures not to tokenize, not to just throw money at a donation, not to receive a lovely tax receipt, but to actually invest in Black storytellers. Last month, publishing paid me hashtag went viral on Twitter with white and BIPOC authors, many of them American, comparing the advances they received from their books. And I don't know if we talked about this in the lens of Canada yet. So JL, what do you think this conversation around advances is missing? Um, well, I am always uh, obsessed with the economics of publishing, and particularly when we talk about Black folks and systemic racism, the economics of it. So this is a really interesting moment for me. Um, as personally as an author, advances have always made me deeply uncomfortable, <laughs> partly because it's a debt, right? You're Talk about it. <laughs> and you have to earn it back. It's not just like this gift that you get to keep with no with no recourse. It's not, it's not a grant. Yeah. It's not a grant, you know, like, and so the, the burden of that is heavy. And for me, I've actually been like, uh, I can take a little less, you know, at times because I just think like, I don't like to carry that. But what you have to understand systemically and what the conversation is missing, um, is that that amount isn't just how much you get. It's how much the publisher believes in you. So it also reflects their willingness to market and invest. And the reality of book sales is that it really does come down to marketing in a lot of cases. And if you don't have that backing, you don't have that support and you're, you're almost set up to fail. And so the interesting thing with this um, publishing paid me is that you saw a number of black writers, some of whom have won awards mm-hmm. or had big names, who were earning less or getting less advances than a new white sparkly um, uh, author. And so what it showed is not just that that's not fair or that's not right, but also that the publishers weren't confident, weren't putting the backing behind those authors who had already proven themselves to be successful. Whitney, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this and maybe what you're doing with Hush Harbor to provide an alternative. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about advances as well. And uh, I echo a lot of what JL has said. Yes, the concept of the advance is very much like a debt. And the other thing as an acquisitions editor, something that was quite interesting is that when we are seeking out an author, let's say I found a brilliant, brilliant black author, bringing them to the table, really excited. We have to do our research to see how their previous works worked and also seeing if they've actually earned out against their um, advance, right? So if you're given a certain number for an advance and you actually don't sell enough books to like recoup back those costs or to get out of debt, as JL had kind of mentioned, um, that also is really hard to sell when I'm trying to pitch that to the rest of my editorial team. So this idea of oh, like throwing a big advance at a person can help or hinder, but then it's like this weird tightrope because you do want to show their value and you do want to show their worth. I, I, we just have about a minute and a half left. I'm going to see if I can get you both on this, but at least Whitney, I'm going to try to get to you on this. Um, mm. What about us as consumers? What can we do as people who buy books, who read books? to support BIPOC authors who might not be backed by major publishers or, or, or to, to try and um, work on anti-Black racism with our dollars? 
True. So first and foremost, if just read Black writers. That's like a very good first step. If folks do not have the money, even taking them out of the library, that comes back to the authors as well. In terms of what you do with your financial dollars is to support Black-led initiatives also like black presses like Hush Harbor. Um, And also not just give like a one-time donation. Talk about membership. Talk about investment. Talk about shares. Talk about how you are truly investing in the longevity of black futures and not just doing like a one-time, ooh, I feel good because I did something nice for a black person today. We have 30 seconds left, JL. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What can we do with our dollars? Yeah, I think consumers, um, I want to encourage people, especially in Canada, to support Black Canadian voices in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think we're putting a lot of pressure on consumers, but it's a lot like, you know, being environmentalists. You just got to do the work to be more thoughtful. So uh, I'm going to talk specifically about picture books. Please not just look at the covers, look at who's writing them and pay attention to those stories. Don't be afraid to buy books by authors you don't know. Uh, if you're not sure how to do this, invest or support independent bookstores that are Afrocentric, mm-hmm. like the Booklist and Knowledge Bookstore. Those are places that have been carrying self-published and traditionally published authors for years. And they know the business, they know the books to recommend. And so they're mm. really great allies and resources to go to. Well, thank you to the both of you. J.L. Richardson is the founder and artistic director of the Festival of Literary Diversity. Whitney French is an author, educator, and co-founder of the new queer feminist press, Hush Harbor. Hi, I'm Shabaka Hutchings, and you are listening to Q with Tom Power. If you're on the west coast of Canada, specifically the islands in BC listening to Q today, I want to let you know that one of the folks from out there, one of the people around you is becoming a bit of a shooting star in the music world. And if you're anywhere else in the country, you need to know about her too. There's an annual music event called Breakout West. They host the Western Canadian Music Awards. And as you might guess, they honor the best in music talent in Western Canada. Alexandria Mayo has just been nominated for Breakout Artist of the Year. And Alexandria is a singer-songwriter from Vancouver Island. Her stuff, I love this, gets described as swoon rock. Last year, she put out her latest album, Benevolence, and in November, she stopped by to perform and to talk to me right here on Q. This album was a response to a tough time in Alexandria's life, and I started by asking her about that. I had moved out when I was 16 years old, um, graduated 16. and stuff, and yeah. um, and I did the whole city thing for a long time, and I had three jobs. Um, but uh, I just got to a point where I realized I wasn't doing music anymore. And uh, the whole purpose of me moving from Vancouver Island to what I considered the big city of Vancouver was to try to do music. And so, yeah, I was working 16 hours a day, and... Uh, this was so depleted and it's really hard to to live in a big city like Vancouver especially when all your rehearsal spaces and venues keep shutting down um so i uh moved back into into my mom's backyard uh on the you. island where where on the island uh, the comox valley mm-hmm. and yeah so this uh, uh this album just takes place with me transitioning back to the island into my mom's backyard after many years not living with her and um just the yeah the experience i had um kind of feeling like i was uh, giving up in a way my my freedom mm. but 
but since moving back, I've just I've found my freedom again. I've I've just been able to tour. I have a home base now. I've, does does it make you? Does it remind you of what makes you excited about to play music in the first place? Yeah, because that's where I wrote in the first place. I I, I wrote on Vancouver Island. I, I I wrote in the woods. I wrote in nature. I wrote in like in that comfort. And when I moved to Vancouver, I I really struggled with that. I guess I'm just like not <laughs> a city person at all. But but moving back to the island, it was like wow, this is it's always been here. I I just left, and I thought I had to leave to gain that perspective. But it was me coming back and saying I had already had that the whole time. So right. that's cool. That's 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 really interesting, and and that really and that impacted your writing. You think? Hey, absolutely, it did. So yeah. you're gonna play one more song for us today. It's called uh, the Judge. What can you tell me about it? Um, well, I wrote the Judge after kind of this hard time in my life. Um, but I wrote it from kind of the perspective of acceptance. Um, I think that a lot of times I write about heartbreak as if it's the present tense. So I wanted to, to take a stab at writing from it, from the, the place where I'm all right at the end of it. And I'm, I'm not angry and I'm not upset. And, and I just think that there's something really beautiful uh, about making a very hard moment um, empowering. So for me, it was, that was what I was trying to, to find in the song, The Judge. I think you're such a great songwriter. Thank you. I think you are too. Also, by no, the way, I'll play the fiddle. No, you're uh, great. Head on, head on over, and uh, and and we're going to listen to some some more music. I love uh, I love Alexandria Mayo's music. I'm so happy she was able to make it in. Her new album is called Benevolence. It comes out. Is it next week? It comes out. Yeah, oh. on November twenty second. November twenty second. Um, this is Alexandria Mayo. As soon as she puts her headphones on, performing the Judge live on cue.
was Alexandria Mayo performing The Judge live on Q. Her album, The Nevolence, is out now. That was a little bit of when she came into the studio. If you want to catch her full segment, you can go to cbc.ca slash Q. She just got nominated for an award in Breakout West's Western Canadian Music Awards in the category of Breakout Artist of the Year. you're listening to Q. You know those phone calls when just in a handful of minutes, your entire life changes direction, either in a good way or a bad way? Well, Anthony Porofsky got one of those in a good way. He was working at this gallery and he got a call telling him that he was about to become one of the hosts of the reality TV makeover show Queer Eye, which was meant to be this reboot of an older show called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And it has become one of the biggest shows in the world. It's one of those shows that kind of everybody watches. It just got nominated for two Emmy Awards, one for reality host, one for structured reality program. And that's the, I mean, that's the biggest award at the Emmys. If you haven't seen the show, its goal is to help people become the best version of themselves possible. And when you watch it, it's hard not to just feel better about yourself watching people improve themselves. It's hosted by five guys. They're called the Fab Five. They each have different areas of expertise. There's self-esteem, there's fashion, there's hair, there's house decor, there's kitchen skills. And Anthony is the food and drinks expert. And this gig, as you might mention, as you might expect, I should say, completely changed his life. So when his first cookbook, Anthony in the Kitchen, came out last year, I had a chance to talk with him about food, about fame, and about growing up in Canada. How's it feeling being back home? It's so nice. Even though I know it's Toronto, not Montreal. But. No, but it's still like when you just – there's something about being in Canada that's um, – you know, I've been, I've been away for almost 10 years now being in New York. And there is something comforting. And it's, it's a homecoming, whether it's Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal – Especially Montreal, because that's where literally Come where I'm from. On. Yeah, but of course. It's like it's 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 a homecoming. There's something about like the sense of humor and like the sensibility of everyone here, where it's sort of like, uh like you just always feel welcome. Yeah, I, I think I saw an interview with you one time, and you were talking about having to vote for your castmate. It was like you versus Jonathan were up for an award, and you said, "Well, I got to vote for Jonathan because I'm Canadian. I got to." Yes, I have to it's be. what we do. We yeah, do. We we're, do. We're nice. So welcome, welcome back. Thank you. And Thank I'm glad. You. I'm glad you have the weather for it. I, I genuinely love it. You know, I was in London a couple of days ago and it was really rainy and everyone was um, – Brits apologize um, for taking up air in the, in the room, not unlike Canadians. It's like a thing that we do. Um, and they were all apologizing for the weather. And I was like, no, I genuinely love this. Like I, I love a good moody mood. Mm-hmm. Anything that like encourages me to light a candle and listen to some sad music, I'm like, yeah, I'm here for it. Anything where I have an excuse to not go for a run. Exactly. <laughs> I can't. It's go. too bad out. I yeah, can't. I don't want to go. It's weather. horrible. I'm just going to stay home and eat cheese. Uh, before we get to the book, so Queer Eyes, this huge phenomenon. Um, but I heard the audition was really intense. But I got to tell you, we don't really know why. So I want to play you a clip of something right now. Okay. This is you being interviewed by your Queer Eye co-host. Jonathan Van Ness on his podcast, Getting Curious, and your answer to the question, what was the most stressful part of the audition, is entirely in Polish. Uh, Take a listen. So you need to respond to this question in Polish. Okay. Um, What was the scariest part of auditioning for Queer Eye? In like three sentences, because I don't feel like listening to you speak in a language I don't understand for like two hours. Oh my God, I'm so bossy. Proces audycji na, na Queer Eye. Bardzo dużo było ludzi z Netflix i z ITV i um, zacząłem się bać troszeczkę, bo realizowałem, że naprawdę to chciałem. I jak zrealizowałem, że naprawdę to chciałem, to suddenly było ważne dla mnie. I understood the word suddenly. 
because I couldn't come up with the Polish word for it. It's like <laughs> Polish is my first language, but I think when I moved to West Virginia, I was there for three years. It's incredible how much I forgot. Mm-hmm. And same with French, and that was a period of my life when I kind of wanted to let go of like who I how was and where I yeah. came from. Yeah. So then my parents were like, "We are sending your ass back to Montreal. You yeah. will not forget who you are." Mm-hmm. Um, What's but, the answer there? Uh, the answer there is basically there were a lot of people auditioning for it, and I didn't think that I wanted the gig because it wasn't anything that I'd really thought about before. It wasn't a dream of mine to be on Queer Eye, to be a food guy. Like I had, I had other aspirations. There was, an, uh, there was a, a very different master plan in my little, in my little black book. Um, but what I, when I realized as the pool sort of started getting smaller and people started getting cut as they do in these, in these, you know, in these uh, instances, I started realizing like I actually really want this because it was a job that, it was the job that I needed. It wasn't the job that I wanted. I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the casting process and about just some of the parts of the book that I really loved are the parts about you sort of getting used to the idea of, of all this and trying to figure out who you are. But I think in order to figure out – to get to that conversation, we got to figure out who you were. Mm. Uh, where, where did the love of food first come from? The love of food? I, I think I was just born with it. I've always been very obsessed with talking about food. My father is the exact same way. I don't know too many people who – can have a meal and be talking about the next one that they're going to have or one that they had a day before. And my dad is exactly that. Um, my sisters are that way as well. But um, I think, you know, food is a very emotional thing for me. I, I, I do come from a pretty dysfunctional family. We weren't very good at communicating at all. Yeah. Um, but when we would have meals together, like that was the time when we would get along. We would like sit and break bread and have whatever, you know, my mother prepared. And um, and those were like really sort of positive times. When I was in West Virginia and my father worked a lot and my mother traveled, she was going back and forth, taking care of my sisters in Montreal, being with me in West Virginia. I was I had a lot of time to sort of fend for myself. So I would like throw ragers. Um, but before said rager, I would like have a dinner party at like somewhere between 12 and 14. And I would like yeah. cook dinner for my friends. I was having like pizza and and our producer, our producer ben said if he, if he got a bag of chips when he was 14 he was pretty happy with it this is remarkable but i liked i like the idea of just like preparing something for someone and just kind of having that ritual and kind of recreating what i had as a kid i'm a very nostalgic person as right. well i'm all about recreating moments if i'm sad i hold on to it for a very long time if i'm happy i do the same you know i don't want to i don't want to speak for you or psychoanalyze you because I, I i play banjo and i can't do that <laughs> but I, I i can't help but think that you know if you have a sort of a dysfunctional family as you say you know and that food was an opportunity to communicate were sort of it was sort of switzerland you were mm-hmm. you were able to be peaceful with one another if you're a kid you move to west virginia you may be not fitting in or you have to meet a whole right. bunch of new people what a great what a great way to have absolutely. that same kind of peaceful moment than a dinner party right absolutely i totally i mean i do think food is the ultimate connector when i think about you know not to like bring up the cookbook i know we'll talk about it but it's it's sort of like every single recipe that's in there like i have a story about like the person who I was with when I experienced it for the first time or mm-hmm. who I think about when I have that. For me, it's just, it's such an incredibly, like I'm an emotional eater in every sense of the word. Like there's, there's always a story behind every single one of those things. What's a, what's a food that you can be in New York or you can be in Los Angeles, you can be anywhere, walk in and smell it and it'll immediately remind you of Montreal? A good bagel shop. Is not that, the bad ones. There's not many. There aren't many. But there's something about like the sweetness of the dough that reminds me of being at St. Vitor and we would go with my dad and he would get a dozen bagels and the guy would give me a nice warm bagel. And then immediately when I got into the car, there's this like smoked salmon spread Mm. that has no dairy in it, but that's kind of like hot, like sweet and flaky. And it's like almost, it's almost a purpley color. And I was just like, 
dip the warm bagel into it, sesame all the way. I don't understand poppy seed. Not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then come <laughs> not, home. Not and just that, not for you, but you you don't even understand it. It's I'm, just, I'm, I just yeah, don't get I'm it. With you, I'm with you. Um, and then the next morning have, you know, like the bagel cut halfway when it's still fresh. You don't have to toast it and have some liberté whipped cream cheese with beautiful summer tomatoes and a lot of pepper and a bit of salt. And it's like... That for me is childhood. And then you have Cafe Olimpico right down the street where you can have your little iced coffee back in the day when people smoked cigarettes and you would just have one and sit outside. It's like it's just I'm taken back to like Mount Royal and what it was like being a university student and going back to St. Vitor and thinking of those childhood memories and like the life that I had and like I can tell even now. Oh, uh, yeah. We're talking, I can see you going to go there right now, man. Yeah. What's it, What's the name of the uh, poet and artist? Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, Mordecai Richler. Mordecai Richler. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking thinking of, like, his pieces immediately when I think of that that part of Montreal. So it must have been, seeing as how food was so important to you, especially what you ate in Montreal when you moved to West Virginia, I mean, you got made fun of what you were bringing for lunch, right? Yeah. It wasn't, I mean, I, I got made fun of for that, but it was also suddenly, like, my name was, well, is, Anthony Porofsky. My uh, family friends called me Anthony which is like short for Antony, but not really. It's a Polish thing. And suddenly it was like weird to have a weird name. I had my seventh grade teacher. She was really lovely and sweet. But I remember the first day of class, she asked me, she was like, oh, so Antek, I heard that you speak three languages. Like you speak Polish, French, and English. And I was like, yeah. And her next question was, why? And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, why would you want to, like, why would you have to speak three languages? That seems so hard. And in my mind, I just couldn't compute. And I was like, I didn't decide this. I was born to to Polish immigrant parents. Yeah. That was the first language. And then French you had to learn in school. And then English was like Sesame Street, like all children of immigrants. And then you take an elective and you learn Spanish because that's like the thing that you do, right? Um, and so suddenly it was like, oh, suddenly I felt embarrassed for who I was, which I think was one of the, you know, I've that's happened to me in many different ways with sexuality and stuff. But in terms of my cultural like identity, um, that was sort of like that, that hit kind of really hard. I, I want to keep going on that just for a second. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is Q. My guest is Anthony Porofsky. He's the food expert on the hit, uh, the hit show Queer Eye, the show in which he and four others, a.k.a. the Fab Five, help people be their best selves. Anthony has a new cookbook out now called Anthony in the Kitchen. Um, so uh, I want to take a listen to this. What's so interesting about your kitchen is that you have these signs of somebody who really appreciates cooking and making things from scratch, but then you have stuff like these fudge rounds and these like super processed, I mean, I don't know. I need help. Yeah. (laughs) To say the least. Yeah, and that's what I'm here for. That's my guest, Anthony Porofsky, on the first episode of the hit Netflix show, Queer Eye. I love that you were laughing while we were playing that. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure out who it was at first, and then I heard dear sweet Tom Jackson's voice, and my eyes are a little watery now, because I'm like, I don't watch footage of myself or really listen to it at all. I don't like to. Uh, yeah. um, and so to hear that is sort of like, wow, I remember how I felt that day. That was our That was our actual, none of the episodes are sort of filmed in succession. They all get kind of mixed around, but that was actually the first episode that we ever filmed, and that was our first day of filming like we didn't i still don't know what i'm doing most of the time but like we didn't know what we were doing we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into we went in with this like childlike innocence and just went scavenging around his apartment and just like looking for stuff and it's just wow i'm not i'm not surprised to hear you say you didn't really know what you're doing and and kind of joking around saying you still don't but because you start this cookbook anthony in the kitchen before you get to these recipes saying that getting the role on queer eye 
whereas, it, you know, it could have been a very validating thing. Mm-hmm. It gave you crippling self-doubt. Like, d- tell me about that. Why did you feel like an imposter here? I mean, I was incredibly excited when I got the job because yeah. I really fought for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was proud of myself. Yeah. But then as, as soon as that sort of that, – that didn't last very long. Um, that was like fast food where it feels great for like five minutes and then suddenly it goes away and, um, and other feelings come in. And where it just suddenly I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm on a show where I'm asked to be – a food guy like there were legit chef de cuisine like there were people who went to culinary school who auditioned for this part who didn't get it so it's sort of like who was i to you know what i mean deserve that you know someone asked me in an interview recently like they're like do you think that you deserve the success that you have i'm going off on a tangent but like i'm not in a bitchy way okay but they were just like i know i know i know what you mean but it was just sort of like do you think that like you you've like you've worked so hard like you really do you oh, feel like you really okay. deserve okay. it? Okay. And I was like, I don't think that anybody deserves to have like the amount of privilege that I have, but I do know that I'm insanely grateful for it, and I remind myself of that every day. And that's kind of like where I'm getting to now, where it's sort of like, look, I'm in this position. Um, I used to pride myself on just like in every interview being like, I'm not a chef, I'm not a chef, I'm a home cook, because I didn't want to piss off all the chefs that I know and like call myself by a title when I'm not really that. But now I've just sort of like accepted and really embraced where now it's like, no, I'm a home cook and I'm a messenger. Like when I'm on Queer Eye, why I was hired was because I can be relatable. And if I'm teaching them something that I don't even know how to make, I'm going to go do the research. I will test it out the night before and I'm going to present it to present it to you in a way where it's actually like sustainable and you can make it again and you want to make it again because I can get you excited. I can get anybody excited about any type of food because I'm just so deeply passionate about it. I mean, that's where that's where I kind of want to go recipe wise. But I was I spoke to your colleague um, Tan France uh, not that long ago. He came on the show and we had we had a really nice chat and it was very odd thing i um we decided we he was in new york and i was here mm-hmm. and we sent him a picture of what i was wearing that day uh-huh and i was terrified turns out just clean up my boots and cuff my jeans and everything oh was... there you go yeah tan loves a cuff jean he certainly yeah, does he really does he's all about it i didn't i didn't do it today so you're I mean, fine all right i don't feel so bad i like a little it. bunched up it's kind of like an, uh, a heady slimon uh like rock and roller type dior saint laurent look yeah thing that, going on. that's what it is yeah, that's exactly, that's what, exactly it is. what that was it your is. intention oh, yeah hundred yeah. percent yeah. <laughs> but, but here's what we talked about I've never seen in you know ever since we've you know ever since we kind of lost mass media. Remember, do you remember we would all watch like Seinfeld? We'd all watch mm-hmm. like one show and talk about it the next day. Yes. Yep. Now friends episodes that, that doesn't really happen anymore. Mm-hmm. But Queer Eye was kind of that. You guys, Tan talked about how he could probably say the one night he went to bed not famous, and the next day he went he woke up and people were recognizing him in the street. Yeah, that's what it was like what's, for all of us. What's that like? Um, there's nothing normal about it. It's, you know, I, I mean, it's incredible why it's happening. I think people are responding to us just basically just trying to be good people and trying to be kind and showing that, like, like everyone deserves help. Um, my mentor described he's uh, has a lot of uh, close friendships with a lot of people who have very public lives. And he was like, Antony's like becoming famous is like losing your virginity. Once your anonymity is gone, it's gone. And your trajectory of your career may be short and really enjoyable. It may be long and painful. It's probably going to be something in between. It's going to be more of a river mm-hmm. with its ripples and everything. But once it's gone, it's gone. And um, just work on like grieving that part of like your anonymity. The, the Antony who wants to sit on a subway and like read his book and like basically just like walk the streets like left alone. Like that's not that's not a reality that exists for you anymore. But at the same time, there's so many other gifts and opportunities that you have. It's a matter of adjusting, and you just have to you have to figure it out. So let, let's talk about this cookbook a little bit. And here's, yeah. here's what I liked about it is that I – it feels weird saying this in front of you. I'm not a bad cook. 
Mm-hmm. I, 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 got, I, I somehow fluked into it, I think, because my mom's an incredible cook. Mm. And just I think you just absorb that kind of stuff, right? Totally. But I, um, I have this job. Where I get home at you know seven o'clock at night, and I, mm-hmm. I you know I kind of had to start again at eight, and I go, oh god, I got like twenty minutes, I got like a right. half hour. What do I do? And I end up ordering something, or I end up making something horrible. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell you what I liked about this book. Not that it's all these kind of things, but I, I feel like there's something in here for people who are busy, right? Totally, totally. It's stuff that people can make, and I'm I'm not about like I try not to be too gimmicky with sort of like. These are all the meals that you can make in less than 20 minutes. But that's actually the type of life that I lead as well. On weekends, I'm going to spend time working on something a little more laborious or like a soup or a stew or something that needs to reduce and sort of like concentrate. Yeah, I love that. But during the week, I just want to I want to make something quick but also feel like I'm taking care of myself and somebody else. And, and that's what a lot of those dishes are as well. It's like the, the book is a mix of everything. Is there a recipe in here that means something to you um, more, more personally than perhaps the others? There's a roasted carrot and carrot top pesto dish. Uh, with a little schmear of Greek yogurt on the base, because I, you know, I love a Greek yogurt, um, <laughs> and um, and that's a dish that I prepared uh, a lot in the spring, in the summer, in the winter um, during a really wonderful seven-year relationship that I had, and it would be made during the week. I'd make it on weekends, and that was like something that we that we had that we would make together. And my partner at the time, he actually helped with it, and he was someone who, when I moved into his apartment, had. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer decorative soda bottles in the oven along with books and video games. So, like, his gas wasn't even turned on. And that was just, like, a really nice thing that we made together. It's funny, you know, because it brings me back to that question I, I asked you about, like, what, what smells of food bring you back to Montreal? Mm. In that moment, I could see just the way your eyes lit up or the way you were smiling that food that we make ourselves can do that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really think so. Anthony Porofsky, the food and drink expert on the hit Netflix show Queer Eye. The show has just been nominated for two Emmy Awards for reality host and structured reality program. They've really got to figure out a more interesting name than that. Season five is streaming now, and you can also check out Anthony's cookbook called Anthony in the Kitchen. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Judy Bloom, who is the author of famously, I mean, a million YA. I think YA books before they were called YA books. When, you know, when they were just like books for little ones. Uh, I don't know why my nan showed up. Uh, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, being the big one. And we talk a little bit about how back in 1970, if you were writing books about sex and puberty for teenage girls, that was going to be a problem, including at her own children's school. All right, Judy Bloom on the show tomorrow. Pretty excited about it. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.